Um, it looks very cozy, very inviting, um, and warm. Um, there's a working fireplace, um, and we're sitting, um, right in front of it, and it's giving off a really, yeah, just welcoming light. Um, and all around us, there are, uh, floor-to-ceiling bookshelves, very nice bookshelves, possibly IKEA bookshelves. <laughs> they are indeed. Um, <laughs> yes, um, functional, but also beautiful. Um, and yeah, just pretty much every poetry book that you know you can think of that you would want and you can just grab it off the shelves that's right that's part of our usp here at the poetry pharmacy every poetry book every poem you ever wanted right here right now for you catalogued and carefully stored in a cool dry place but not too dry not too cool poems need to breathe need to talk to other poems so a bit of warmth and moisture is also good which is where the fireplace comes into it and vegan marshmallows there would be dandies vegan marshmallows for those in the know. The amount of marshmallows we get through in the pharmacy. I wonder if dandies sponsor podcasts. Dandies, if you're listening, can we talk marshmallows and poetry at some point? The voice you just heard was that of the poet Chen Chen describing our little pharmacy with a big mission that of getting the poems you need most into your eyes, ears, heart, soul, lungs, between your toes. Chen is the author of a recent collection from Boa the fabulous title when i grow up i want to be a list of further possibilities if you haven't already bought that what are you waiting for if the apocalypse is nigh you might as well stock up on as much poetry as you possibly can so we're going to kick things off today in the pharmacy with chen reading a poem by keegan lester which we'll then talk about before i prescribe a poem to him from jay dodd and finally some chen chen wizardry to round things off hope you enjoy so this comes uh, at the end of the, the main section um, from his book. Uh, this shouldn't be beautiful, but it was, and it was all I had, so I drew it. To the tin band that read Keegan Matthew Lester, 21841 Seacrest Lane, Huntington Beach, California, Eater Elementary, the one with a brontosaurus imprint on the top, to the man who told me to believe in what we could not see and called it science before telling us they were mistaken. To the letter I received from science a few years back. We here at science want to apologize. We had our own misgivings, but wanted to see how it would play out. We are sorry about your brontosaurus. There are cartoons and movies and books. We were too late to call it off. Museums were doing well. People could look at the scale of our hyperbole for the first time and understand the way we love. We literally made a skeleton of hyperbole to teach you to dream again. Museums kept their lights on due to things we made up. We got adults to make up stories for children to explain the feasibility of something so large and terrifying and confusing that only ate plants, that only a comet could have killed. Vegetarians loved us in the 90s. Now we sell drugs and will be in business for a long time. Would you like some drugs? Also, Pluto, not a planet. Sorry about that, too. We grew tired of discovering. We wanted to create things, just this one time. We wanted to know what it would feel like to paint rooms for an afternoon. Sorry. Sincerely, science. 
to the prayer science and I wrote together. God, rid me of God. God, help me give up credibility today so that I might be able to make something for someone else. Thank you. So when I read this poem, I thought, ah, oh, this, is, this, is this is such a good poem to have in the pharmacy. I mean, there's certain poems that when you read them, they, they just have a, an immediate effect on your kind of neurophysiology. And I suppose like, like powerful drugs, um, you recognize that there's, there's, some, there's some powerful active ingredients in this poem mm -hmm. that's having this effect on you um yeah this poem makes me feel really good um <laughs> and um i think a lot of it has to do with its humor um the brontosaurus um and how that comes in um but it starts off in this really incredibly personal place where we get you know the poet's full name and you know, where they were born and this, you know, specific place. Um, and then it just latches on to this detail in a surprising mm. way, the Brontosaurus imprint. Um, and that just could becomes... I, could I ask yeah. you, yeah, could I ask you, what, what, do you, what is this tin band? I mean, I'm not even... I mean, it's obviously a, it's a childhood object. Yeah. But what, what is it? Is it a... a do you have an image of it in your mind? Is it something, I, I'm just wondering if it's a kind of like an American thing um, <laughs> that, or that kind of um, American kids would have in nursery school. It's, wh what is it exactly? What do you imagine it as? Honestly, I don't really know either. Uh -huh. um, it just seems to be this um, personal item. Like I imagine it because it's saying you know, like the name of the elementary school is on it. So I'm imagining that it's something school related that you would bring with you, like um, a lunchbox or um, a backpack, a keychain, um, some kind of yeah personal item that you would take with you to school. Um, but I just love that, you know, it has like this information on it, sort of like, um, you know, one of those labels that you would get, you know, in case um, something gets lost, you know, how to return it to the owner. So that's, that's how I'm picturing it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and then he goes from there into this incredible riff yeah. on science. Yeah, right? this, this letter <laughs> from science. And I love that it's science <laughs> and not scientists. Um, yeah. You know, it's not a person. Uh, it's this... Uh, force. It's this collective force of science as a whole um, writing this letter <laughs> um, to the speaker and to, to the reader, really. Uh, and I just love that um, associative leap um, that it takes um, into this world in which um, a dinosaur has been made up and science is sort of confessing its sin of having done this um, and is very apologetic um, but also defensive, you know, talking about the museums um, being kept open uh, because of this invention and uh, the stories that children get to hear um, from adults. So um, 
you know, it's the poem starts to really explore the pleasure in invention, um, in creating something, making something up, um, and you know, even while apologizing for it. Um, and then the poem ends up in this really wonderful space of celebrating um, creation. So, in a way, the poem ends up being about um, poetry without um, really sort of naming that subject. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it sort of goes in this um, back way um, into um, talking about, yeah, creating in general and, and what does that mm-hmm. mean. Um, I just, I fell in love with those last lines. Um, you know, God help me give up credibility today so that I might be able to make something for someone else. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you about those last lines mm-hmm. um, because I, I kept on reading them and rereading them the first time I and the second and the third and the fourth time, and they they have this something circular about them, right? That they have a kind of like a, a kind of almost mind jamming koan like circularity to them, and I just wonder what you. Yeah, what what do you take from them? Um, because whenever I read them, I feel like I'm kind of I feel like I'm, I can kind of grasp what they're saying and then suddenly it eludes me again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's something really mysterious uh, and magical about that ending. And yeah, I feel like every time I read it, I read it in a somewhat different way. Um, but I guess the main way that I interpret that ending uh, would be this idea of... Um, giving up or rejecting um, authority, um, you know, because of this letter from science. Um, Rejecting authority in order to uh, make something. Um, And that creativity um, is rooted in this um, openness to um, new ways of looking at the world um, and unusual ways of looking at the world. Um, so that, you know, you might make something up like a brontosaurus, this fantastical creature. Um, you know, even though dinosaurs are real, this particular one <laughs> happens not to be, um, but that there's a sort of delight in that. And I think part of being a poet is, yeah, staying open to that, um, you know, the possibility. And, yeah. And, and yet at the same time, there is something of that kind of Keatsian negative capability as well, right? In the mm. sense that in giving up authority, we're also, in order to do that, we're also having to um, accept authority to some extent, accept certain limits, like the limits of a page, like the limits of a line, mm. which is so perfectly captured in this very paradoxical God rid me of God. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. How is that possible for God to rid you of God? Mm-hmm. God, help me to give up credibility. Help me yeah. to give up credibility of you. Right. But to give up credibility of you, I need to believe in you. Right. To a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sort of <laughs> ultimate authority. Um, yeah, it's, uh-huh. it's this relationship. It's this dialogue um, that, yeah, is... Uh, pretty contradictory uh, at its heart. Um, but that's sort of, you know, this, this relating to the world, you know, having to observe and take in what's around. I mean, I think about the relationship to language, too, that 
there is already a knowledge and an authority in language and, you know, in how we learn it. And, you know, there are these rules and structures. Um, and so in writing, you know, at once we're kind of obeying those rules or listening to those rules, but also bending them. Um, and so, yeah, there is this real sort of back and forth. Um, yeah, so the, yeah, the God, mm. rid me of God, I think can also apply to the medium of the poet language. Yeah. I mean, you referred also to that wonderful middle line where he says, uh, where he talks about, um, you know, we, we literally made a skeleton of hyperbole to teach you to dream again. Mm -hmm. Museums kept their lights on due to the things we made up. And I think a lovely thing there is that, that sometimes that distinction we sometimes make between the arts and the sciences, right? Mm -hmm. In a way, between authority and creativity, you could also put it in that way. Right. It's perhaps a false, dis uh, a false distinction because here the museums are being, the museums of science, as it were, are being kept open for this creation. Yeah, I mean, I, I love hyperbole, and I think that often poems grow out of hyperbole, out of um, exaggeration, or this desire to kind of augment um, reality. <laughs> um, and I think of, I mean, I think of Emily Dickinson's uh, Tell All the Truth, But Tell It Slant. Um, so something sort of off to the side, maybe exaggerated. Um, I also think of um, uh, the contemporary poet Mary Rufall, um, who selected um, Keegan Lester's first book um, for this book prize at Slope Editions, um, actually. And she says something really great um, and funny <laughs> about um, how poems basically begin as mistakes. Um, but unlike other people, poets aren't trying to sort of correct their mistake. They just keep going <laughs> in the direction lovely, yeah. of that mistake. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so to yeah. me, that's also related to this line yeah. about hyperbole. Um, we made yeah. a whole skeleton out of hyperbole. That's you know, right. we just kept going. And, yeah. and, to, quote, and to quote you uh, back to yourself, or rather to quote you via um, Tolstoy, I think it was, you did an erasure recently of... Tolstoy on that theme yeah. where your erasure reads, if I've copied this correctly, <laughs> art is the life of a mistake. It produces a new soul different from the artist, but not. Mm -hmm. Which again, I think is very much in line with sure. that, um, that, yeah. that, that Rufler thought. Yeah, and I did that erasure actually because um, I was kind of annoyed with Tolstoy. <laughs> like I was reading that passage and he was being very authoritative about art um, and what artists do and um, people he doesn't consider artists, you know, the mistakes that they make um, in, you know, trying to write something. And I was like, but what if there's something beautiful in um, those mistakes and those people who are making those mistakes who might not consider themselves artists necessarily. But um, yeah, so I, I so you literally undercut him, as it were. You literally erased yeah. the authority mm -hmm. and allowed some uh, contradictory but also true mm -hmm. truth to emerge from yeah. the text. But it was still Beautiful, a kind of yeah. conversation at the same time, you know, as I was saying earlier, because I'm still using his words. So it was very much a God rid me of God moment, I would say. Absolutely, yeah. So to stay with hyperbole, that seems like a good 
word to kind of jump into the next poem, sure. um, which is the poem I chose.、Mm-hmm. And the poem is called "Ars Poetic." Shall I read it for us? Yeah, I'd love to love to talk about this one. Yeah. Okay. Ars Poetic. Every poem is a death, and each stanza, an economy, built on an ocean floor, covered in bones. Like my mouth, every poem is that same mouth, filled with loose teeth and salt water. Every poem is ship and sea and sail, a cargo passage, or the vessel obliged with displacing the poet's form. Every poem casts some mass, some measure. Requires a body to expose itself, a grammar called recompense. Every poem is a rhetorical interrogation of how many questions can you fit in your mouth, or if the jaw learns to unhinge, how will it hang? Heavy and full, be ripe fig on low branch. Each poem is the pit, the seed, the fresh. And the moulding, delineate, the harvest before the drought. Or, every poem is masturbation, the gesture of naming in so many words, crafting metered stroke in lyric and verse, and still, every poem, even in its most spectacular excitement, must know how to finish itself off. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Powerful stuff.、Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it starts with this very strong statement, which, like a lot of strong statements expressed very declaratively, you know, every poem is a death. It almost feels like an unquestionable truth. Right. But I was wondering, you know, when you then think about it, I was wondering, well. In what way is that true? Is that tr- in what way do you find truth in that statement? Every poem is a death. Well, on one level,、um, maybe just <laughs> kind of a basic literal level, I think about how hard poems are to write, <laughs>、uh, and it can kind of feel like you're wringing yourself out、um, trying to. Put together、uh, this house of language,、uh, and so there is this sort of—I mean, the energy exerted. But I also think of a kind of shedding of skin, of、um, like a prior self, maybe.、Um, so yeah, having to ex- to go through、um, this. Uh, tremendous、um, and difficult experience,、um, just to yeah to to write something.、Um, every poem is a death in each stanza,、um, yeah, and how it follows up. An economy built on an ocean floor, covered in bones, like my mouth. So this really bodily process mm, as mm. well. Yeah, it's interesting you sh- you mentioned the word house because. 
I, when I read the when I read that first line, I thought, let me just you know, let me look up the word economy. It's a very particular word, mm -hmm. um, and and just remind myself what it, what does that mean, economy, right? And of course, economy is. Um, a careful management of available resources, but it comes from these two Greek words. One is oikos, house, mm -hmm. and the other one is manage. So it's essentially household management. Mm -hmm. So kind of how you could say maybe how we put our sort of existential houses in order. Sure. In a way. Yeah. Right? But the interesting thing is, is that if that's the case, this house, as you say, um, is it's quite a fragile house. It feels quite. It feels very mortal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think of the phrase "body of work" too, um, which mm -hmm. we often use to talk about um, you know collections of poems. Um, someone's uh, yeah work, body of work, um, and a little later on in the poem. Um, this part, every poem costs some mass, some measure, requires a body to expose itself. Um, so, I may mean, find the poem just very candid about, um, yeah, th these costs and, and the vulnerability that it takes uh, to write something, um, this, this exposure. Um, I mean, I think about when I received um, the galleys for uh, my chapbook, um, this first little body of work, and I've been thinking about these poems and working on them for so long, but then it struck me seeing them in physical form that <laughs> this was something real and how personal the poems are were and how vulnerable. Um, and yeah, so I think that this poem really gets at that. Um, phenomenon um, requires a body to expose itself. And there's, um, I mean, the erotic element as well um, in this poem. Like, it's interesting to me that it goes from, from death to, to masturbation um, in that last part, um, and this mm. spectacular excitement. Um, and this pun at the end, that finish, mm. um, you know, can refer to the erotic act as well as um, death. Yeah, and and in a way, I don't know if this was intentional. I'm sure it probably was. There is also a pun in the first line, right? Mm -hmm. um, there is already the yeah. masturbation in the first right. line because because you know I think in French the um, little death is the orgasm. Yeah. So you know every poem you could you could also say every poem is an orgasm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and and the mouth is. Um, you know, the main body part that's sort of focused on um, in this poem, too. Um, every poem is that same mouth filled with loose teeth and salt water. Um, you know, the jaw learns to unhinge. Um, so there's this image of, you know, how much can the body open um, and sort of take in of um, you know, the world? Um, you know, there's this travel image to the ship and sea and sail. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's through, through the body. Mm. Now you mentioned a little bit earlier, Mary, I can't pronounce her name, is it Mary Rufle? Rufle, yeah. Mary Rufle. I was listening to a, um, a, an interview with her recently, and she was sort of saying something like, you know, um, <laughs> 
she would she wishes that someone had sat her down although i think someone ha- did and she of course ignored them someone had sat her down when she was in her 20s and basically said don't go into the pobies yeah um you know poetry at that time it seems like the most important thing in the world the center of the universe but actually um it's you know i mean she she put it in very stark terms, she said, no one's interested in poetry. Nobody reads poetry. Nobody gives a shit about poetry, basically. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and I wonder if in a way that this poem also kind of plays with that, again, that sort of distinction, like the distinction in the previous poem between the arts and the science, that distinction between kind of poetry being the most important thing we have, the most significant thing we have, and then also poetry almost being the most negligible thing we have. Because, of course, you know, with that final or, right? Or, okay, it might be all of these incredibly important, mm-hmm. meaningful, existential things, or it could just be, you know, masturbation, which, mm-hmm. you know, a moment of erotic excitement, a moment of self-soothing, but nothing more. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you, th- where do you kind of stand in terms of those two markers, I suppose, you mm. know, that kind of sense of it, of the the everything and the nothing, the everything and the nothingness of poetry, well, I or love... the importance and the and the and the negligi- negligibility, if that's a word mm-hmm. of poetry. Mm-hmm. Well, I love how this poem gets me to think about uh, indulgence and mm. how uh, writing can be an indulgence. But I also think of Audre Lorde's essay, um, Poetry is Not a Luxury, um, and just how she argues um, that, you know, poetry is this necessity in part because actually this kind of pleasure is a necessity and that often we create this sort of false dichotomy between, oh, this thing is pleasurable and this thing is serious because it isn't pleasurable, Um, you know, or that it's laborious or, um, you know, we can tell that it's serious because it's, you know, I think like the stereotypical image of poetry as this puzzle or this riddle that, you know, you have to decode um, instead of this um, act of language that um, gives pleasure, that is something that you feel in the body. And so I think this poem is uh, trying to collapse um, that dichotomy or that binary of you know pleasure versus something more serious. Um, and it's sort of acknowledging that, yeah, you know, every poem is masturbation or it could be, but that there's nothing wrong with that at the same time, or that there's something to celebrate in that um, supposed um, indulgence. Um, I mean, I I love um, the play on words also with crafting metered stroke, too. Mm. Um, You know, so this idea of like the rhythm and the sound, the pace of um, poetry, um, you know, sort of um, being in line um, with this erotic act. Um, So, yeah, I, I feel like this this poem is um, getting at um, you know wh- you know why why do we make that distinction? Um, yeah, it does such a lot in such a short space, doesn't it? I mean, it mm-hmm. really it really kind of packs it all in. Let's move to the pleasures of your poetry, Chin. Okay. 
Yeah. Um, so, mm. pleasure is very much a word I associate with reading you. Um, and yet, of course, like all good pleasures, um, there is also... It's not a fickle pleasure. It's it's a it's a deep pleasure. It's a it's a wise pleasure. There's a lot of a lot of wisdom in these poems, which is why I um, I prescribe them regularly <laughs> to my patients. I literally do. I, I actually prescribed a, um, at the end of a session on Friday. I said, "Go away and read this." <laughs> oh wow! Um, yeah, because I think I think you're, I think. I think your poems, like like really good medicine, um, they have that spoonful of sugar. Yeah. More than a spoonful, they have they have that they have that which makes it makes yeah. the medicine go down. Mm -hmm. You know, um, in terms of people actually also then being open to the um, to the wisdom. I can't really think of another word. The wisdom of the poem. So. The poem that I would love you to read, please, is um, the last poem in in the collection. Could you could you give us a reading? Sure. Poplar Street. Oh, sorry. Hello. Are you on your way to work too? I was just taken aback by how you also have a briefcase also small and brown. I was taken by how you seem secretly to love everything. Are you my new coworker? Oh, I see, no. Still, good to meet you. I'm trying out this thing where it's good to meet people. Maybe beyond briefcases, we have some things in common. I like jelly beans. I'm afraid of death. I'm afraid of farting even around people I love. Do you think your mother loves you when you fart? Does your mother love you all the time? Have you ever doubted? I like that the street we're on is named after a tree when there are none, poplar or otherwise. I wonder if a tree has ever been named after a street, whether that worked out. If I were a street, I hope I'd get a good name, not Maine, or pleasant. One night I ran out of an apartment down North Pleasant Street. It was soft and neighborly with pines and oaks. It felt too hopeful after what happened. After I told my mother I liked a boy and she said, no, you're sick. Get out before you get your brother sick. Sometimes parents and children become the most common strangers. Eventually, a street appears where they can meet again, or not. Do I love my mother? Do I have to forgive in order to love? Or do I have to love for forgiveness to even be possible? What do you think? I'm trying out this thing where questions about love and forgiveness are a form of work I'd rather not do alone. I'm trying to say, let's put our briefcases on our heads in the sudden rain and continue meeting as if we've just been given our names. Thank you. So you, you were talking earlier about 
the work that goes into making a poem. And I suppose I, I was wondering when I read this poem, when I read any poem that I particularly admire, um, just a very simple question of how does a poem like this get made, just in terms of the craft? I mean, what is the, what is the genesis of, of, of a poem like this? Could you share that a bit with us? Yeah, so it really started, I can remember specifically, um, it was in 2014, I was at this um, like week-long sort of series of writing workshops, um, sort of a summer camp for writers, I guess. Uh, it's kind of an odd feeling, you like all wake up together and go to breakfast and then go to workshop. Um, and um, our workshop instructor, um, yeah, for poetry was telling us um, that we should try to be more specific about places. I guess he was noticing that not a lot of us were writing um, with specific places in poems or like place names. Um, and he just encouraged us to do that. Um, and so as sort of an exercise, I just decided to um, give this poem that title. Um, so I had that title, Poplar Street. Um, and I was in Amherst, Massachusetts, um, which is um, where I grew up. I went to elementary school and middle school there. Um, so it was like literally a walk down memory lane. So I was thinking a lot about streets, street names, um, and things that have happened there. And I'd already written a couple poems um, that I knew would go into this collection that all had to do with this night um, when I was 13 and tried to um, come out to my parents um, and had this really difficult emotional confrontation with my mother. Um, and I sort of ran out um, and I thought about running away from home. Um, and so, yeah, there are a couple poems in the book that return to that scene. Um, and this ended up being one of them, I think, because I was just in that very associative place of thinking about street names. And I was in the town where that night had occurred, too. Um, and so it was just another um, entryway um, into that into that memory, um, and a painful memory, too. Um, but I wanted to try to write about it from a sort of different angle, and that's where this you in the poem comes in, um, this sort of imagined um, speak, uh, addressee, I guess, um, that the speaker is engaging with on the street, you know, as they're walking. And so I just imagined this um, conversation taking place. Mm. Yeah. And I think what what makes it so incredibly skillful is how you is how you get to this kind of moment of trauma in the sense that um, you know you start off with it's the framing right is so important you start off with this moment of, of this meeting of um, essentially at this meeting of shared humanity yeah um, you know we have things in common I like jelly beans I'm afraid of death I'm afraid of farting okay. 
that's a moment of shared humanity. We all, essentially, most of us, <laughs> like jelly beans, are afraid of death and afraid of farting, or have, or are ambiguous around farting. Right? <laughs> um, and then you move, but then you move. This, the, 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 there's a little um, sort of indication, you know, when you start talking about mother, and then you move into this rupture, this more ambivalent relationship between parents and children, right? You know, particularly this moment where that kind of unconditional love which we hope to have and always have from our parents breaks down in some way. One thing that was really interesting when you were reading it, because I didn't want to write on my copy of, of your um, book, I, so I've got a, I basically found the poem online and mm -hmm. printed up a copy for myself. Yeah. And I noticed when you were reading, just because I've got an earlier version of it, yeah. that in the lines where you talk about, um, this person talks about telling their mother, in the earlier version, mm -hmm. um, you had, after she said she was afraid of me, terrified. Mm -hmm. um, so it seems like there is there a, a real moment of kind of, even though you are being attacked, or this person is being attacked, but let's say you are being attacked, um, there is there is also, a, it seems to me, a moment of kind of empathy for the fact that maybe her, her, her judgment, her criticism is coming from fear. Mm -hmm. And then I noticed in the, the version that's in the book, um, I only noticed it because you read it out and I had the two in front of me, that you had removed that. I'm mm -hmm. just really interesting what was your thinking, say, in taking, in taking that factor out and mm -hmm. focusing more on, more on the attack, really? I mean, you leave mm -hmm. in what is really those, those cruel and kind of um, attacking words. Mm -hmm. um, that's a good question. I haven't thought about that particular change in a while. Um, although I do remember, yeah, making these edits, that one and another one later on um, in the poem before it went in the book as this um, final or just different version, I guess. Um, mm. And I mean, I feel okay with both versions existing, you know, the one that you're talking about, you can just find it online. Um, and so in a way that aspect is still there. Um, it just depends on sort of where you encounter the poem first. Um, so I don't really mind that. Um, because yeah, it's a good point that you make about um, the empathy that was there um, in that earlier version. But I think mainly I was just thinking that the language there felt more abstract to me and not as in the moment um, of someone actually having that um, confrontation, that conflict. Um, and so I just wanted it to feel more immediate um, and also move a little more quickly because um, those words are kind of heavier um, and they sort of wait, they slow down that moment. Um, and so I just wanted, yeah, the, the pain of that um, dialogue um, to come through more sharply um, and quickly. Um, and I guess if I'm, you know, I'm thinking about it now, um, because the poem ends up being this difficult meditation and this unresolved meditation on forgiveness, 
um, you know, sort of just leaves it as this open question. Um, I think um, that for me, it ends up being more effective um, to just have that, you know, sharp pain um, sort of stand um, and not have something um, mitigate it um, in this particular poem. I mean, there are other because it pieces. Also, yeah, absolutely. That makes complete sense because it also renders maybe more starkly and more painfully the the hurt there which then makes that question and this is i was talking a little bit before the kind of the wisdom of your poetry it makes this this very kind of wise question you know do i have to forgive in order to love or do i have to love for forgiveness to even be possible it makes in a way that question um so much more salient or challenging mm -hmm. i was just wondering where you personally stand on with that with the, with that question mm -hmm. um, now do I have to forgive in order to love or do I have to love for forgiveness to even be possible well I feel like the real question of that this that this poem brings up is because it's looking at this situation where a mother's love seems less than unconditional um, and so to me you know so the question beneath it all is um, sort of, um, you know, what, can you unconditionally, like, can, can the speaker, can I unconditionally love someone who seems at <laughs> many moments not to give that to me? Um, you know, and, and so what, what is the basis for unconditional love? But like the second you ask that, it seems like there are conditions, right? Um, you know, first, this person has to act in such and such a way um, for me to love them. Um, and so I think it, it, I mean, it's an ongoing um, question of, you know, what, what is um, that kind of pure or, um, yeah, deep, um, serious love um, look like? Um, and, um, I don't know. I think it, it, it's a really hard, uh, thing to, to answer. Um, and, but I, but I think that's, that's where the, the important stuff happens, um, in poetry as well as in life. When you get to those, uh, questions that are, uh, unanswerable or you're still working through them. Um, you know, you're very much in that process. And so I wanted this poem to, to, to articulate that, um, that struggle of, you know, and, and turning to a stranger in this case, in, in the poem, to ask, you know, what do you think? Um, because, I, yeah, I, I don't think it's something that you can um, wrestle through on your own. Mm. Well, I think that, 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 that those sort of essential questions are, um, those kinds of questions, the ones you're posing in a, in a lot of your poems, which I think also, again, makes them so rich and um, beautiful and entertaining and healing as well. Um, which is why we will continue to be prescribing them in the pharmacy <laughs> Thank you. for many years to come. 
And I just want to thank you so much for coming in and reading and chatting and sitting in front of the fire um, <laughs> with me, um, toasting a couple of marshmallows. Yeah. Um, it's, it's been really, really fun having you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I love poetry and marshmallows. So, yeah. <laughs> it's a perfect combination. It's great. <laughs> okay, thanks, Chen. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If so, please could you do us a short but hopefully very sweet review on iTunes. It would really help publicize the podcast further. And don't forget, we're on Twitter also as poetry pharmacy and if you're wanting a prescription we're more than happy to provide one just dm us or tweet whatever's ailing you big or small and we'll find you a poem you can also email the poetry pharmacy at gmail.com one final thing um in the next year i'm involved in a fundraising project called 52 poems in 52 weeks where i'm trying as the name suggests to learn 52 great poems like the ones you've heard today in 52 weeks I'm currently on my fourth week, I think. Um, it's all to raise money for this Safe House Education College Fund in Kenya, um, a charity set up about 15 years ago to help young Maasai girls escape from FGM and child and marriage, as well as providing them with primary and secondary education. And if you want to see me doing my cover version recitals of the poems you can watch that on the youtube channel 52 poems in 52 weeks great if you subscribe but even more so than subscribing please please um, a small donation a large donation even just a couple of bucks to the sponsorship page link on this website would be so very much appreciated um what else yes some fantastic poetry collection prizes on offer for those subscribing five pounds or even five dollars or more check it out by following the link on the episode page thanks for listening and take care until we next meet in the poetry pharmacy bye